electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, Mark Zuckerboom. MetaShares rocketing higher even though the social network reported softness in the back half of the first quarter and lost monthly active users. We'll go inside the numbers just minutes away, plus the China challenge. Most of Shanghai is still locked down. It's been over a month. Beijing and other major cities battling to keep from suffering a similar fate. A look at why President Xi won't abandon his COVID zero policy and the ripple effects that could hit our shores. And later, digital downgrade. Will 2022 go down as the year where we hit social streaming and online overload? And the market impact of those stocks tether to the digital domain. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grasso, and Julie Beal, portfolio manager Kane Anderson Rudnick. We start off with an earnings alert on Meta Platforms, a mixed quarter for the parent company of Facebook, beating on the top line, missing on revenues. Investors seem to like what they're hearing so far. The conference call is just kicking off. Julia Borson is here to take us inside the numbers. Julia. Well, Melissa, Meta shares are up nearly 17%, bouncing off a 52-week low after daily active users returned to growth after declining last quarter. And I just want to clarify something you just said. The company grew monthly active users to $2.936 billion, so that's up from $2.912 billion. It was slightly lower than anticipated, but it was an increase from the prior quarter. Now, I did speak to Meta CFO Dave Weiner, who noted that there was sequential growth in daily active users in every region except Europe, which was, of course, impacted by the war and shuttered operations in Russia. Now, in terms of second quarter guidance of between 28 and 30 billion, that is below the 30.6 billion consensus. Wayner telling me that revenue would have been higher if it were not for the war in Ukraine. And they do expect in the second quarter not only that to have an impact, but also further foreign exchange headwinds as well. Now, as for other issues the company flagged last quarter, Wayner told me that they are continuing to work on better ad targeting in the wake of Apple's operating system changes and that they are pleased with the growth of Reels, saying that Reels growth will be a revenue headwind in 2022, but longer term Reels are a great opportunity for monetization. Of course, we'll hear much more on the call, which just started a minute ago. Melissa? Julia, thank you. Julia Borston up 16.5% right now in after hours trade. But the setup is the stock was down more than 40% since it reported its last quarter. Karen, what'd you make of this quarter? Thank God, I think was really <laughs> what I made of this quarter. I mean, I thought it, the tiniest miss, but with the stock at this level, expectations were clearly looking for something worse, especially on the heels of Alphabet last night. So I think, and, and it's Facebook trading down seven, whatever, seven, eight bucks today. So I thought, I thought it was good, especially in the context of this was a 13 PE stock earlier today, mm -hmm. right? Not even including the cash. So that's just an extraordinarily cheap, I mean, I don't even know, I, I don't know, the EBITDA number is maybe eight or nine. That's ridiculously cheap for a company like this. So I think that any hint of, okay, things aren't falling apart was met with a very, very good reaction. I always like to listen to the call though, because there's some nuance there or 
Sometimes they drop some bombs, sometimes some good things. So I don't want to say, okay, it's oh, the worst is over for sure, but I'm very pleased with these numbers. So, so their numbers today were, they, you know, they missed on the top line, but they beat on the bottom line. And that's actually uh, the opposite of what's been you know, not working. So in other words, this has worked. Uh, and I think a lot of this beat is really revenue expenses. If you look at the numbers, they came in significantly less than they had guided earlier in the year. We'll get some more information on that. But before we saw this after hours move, you could have bought Facebook uh, at the levels it traded at today all the way back in October of 20. 17. So if you think about it and you think about where, where the revenue growth was year over year plus 6%, and this is the slowest growth that we've seen out of Facebook since they IPO'd, um, we, look, we've, we've digested. We expected this, as Karen said, it's kind of a relief uh, in a week when we've been dealing with Netflix. Um, we've had some sense in their last quarter where they had contraction. And, and so all of these, these legacy mega cap tech companies who have a core platform and a business that's not only not growing, but thank goodness it didn't contract today. Uh, and I think that's the story. Reality Lab still very distant. Uh, Julia talked about um, the the reels business, and I think that is something. You know, we were talking about their, that during COVID, where small business and and think about where their core advertiser base is and their core customer base, and very good for them. I do think this is something to be excited about. Yeah, I mean, the concern about reels is that it was cannibalizing time spent on other feeds that were better monetized at Facebook. Grasso, they seem to sort of answer that a little bit. I mean, at least we saw the growth there in reels. But how are you feeling because? Because, you know, Karen had mentioned the conference call is usually where, you know, anything can happen on this conference call. We've seen this before, specifically with Facebook. Um, and here, hearing that the back half of the first quarter was really impacted by war, that it's going to continue to see FX exchange. There's still a lot of questions in my mind, at least, about the quality, the nuance of that guide. Well, I think this is a relief rally. Uh, you know, the same thing that everyone else was saying. Um, Tim had mentioned it. It's revenue growth is the slowest since the IPO. Uh, this is a company that 97% of revenues is ad generated. So if Reels is not monetizing the correct amount or as much as other segments, and that's the future, then that's a problem. This is, uh, you, you called it, it was down 45%. So this is a bounce that probably on a technical level was due. Did we hear, and, and the call to Karen's point, are we going to hear anything about the ad track changes? Are, are we going to hear anything about that? That's what's really put a lid on the stock. The problem is we don't know where users, uh, user growth is growing. They had a one-off here. The company told us that the metaverse is going to take years and cost billions. I don't know what the strategy is, and I don't know what the benchmark for success is as well. So, yes, it's a great little bounce back. This is a relief rally, but I don't think it's anything more than that just yet. Relief rally of 18% and climbing at this point, Julie Beal. This is not a high-flying, high-multiple tech stock here. So how are you feeling about Meta? Well, I think the biggest problem when you're thinking about earnings, right, is let's say you're taking the price to earnings, is you, know, you have a certain amount of certainty around the earnings. And I think if you consider the level of costs that are going to be borne by this business as a result of their efforts in VR without any real business plan around it, you have some risk to earnings because you don't have the top line expansion that you were hoping for and that we've kind of come to expect, right? And I think that just reflects the saturation, the level of market control this company has. And the level of market control is a problem, right? Because it really raises the ire of regulators. We're already seeing that in Europe. And I think that's a real risk to the business long term. 
So I understand what you're saying, and clearly this is a risk. We don't know how it's going to work out. They've been in positions before where they need to pivot meaningfully, mm. right? And they've been able to do it. So I sort of give them the benefit of the doubt. These, these expenses that they have sort of guided toward, remember that the cash flow of the business is so strong that they can afford these expenses. Imagine what it would be without them. That would be extraordinary. So it's never traded at this BDE. It's never traded at this uh, enterprise value to EBITDA. To your point, the stock hasn't traded here for five years. The company is so much more profitable now. I understand the flip side of that argument is, yes, but it's growing so much more slowly. So the but five, it, that means at any price you wouldn't buy it? Right. The five-year yeah. five mark, though, I mean, five years ago, would you look at the potential growth that Facebook was looking at and think that it was as good as the moment in time that is now five years of out. Of course not. And, and so I think that it, your point is that the saturation in the core platform is, is part of the concern. It's the same saturation we're digesting with other mega cap companies. And, I, and, and, and ultimately, though, Karen's point is a, is a very good one. Um, forget growth at a reasonable price. I mean, you know, yes, 6%. Uh, quarter over quarter growth, but at the same time, think of the digital ad growth. Think of the the the, the duopoly. It's not a duopoly, but boy, Facebook and Google um, are so out there and so ahead of everyone. And think of the the the. I know there are headwinds from the economy potentially coming. I know advertisers during periods like this pull back a little bit, but where else are they going to go? And, and, and I think this is where you get to with Facebook. So uh, I'm not dying to own this stock. And I can quote guy who's not here today. He he doesn't necessarily like the company. Um, he hates the company. I think is yes. what he might say. Um, but he. <laughs> doesn't necessarily hate the stock. It's hard to hate the stock at, at these levels, except for the fact that it's caught up in a market um, where these companies continue to be punished. Facebook being treated like high multiple tech that it's not. I think abhor. Is he, <laughs> would more, be the well, word it's that certainly a common theme. Um, for more on Meta's quarter, let's bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Gene, what do you make of this 18% bounce? Uh, I'm relieved. Uh, Loop is a shareholder and uh, relieved on that. I think that the $2 billion DAU number, keep in mind that they had a headwind with DAU related to Eastern Europe. And I want to just emphasize on that quickly, Melissa, is uh, the DAU number is the network. That is the core value, ultimately, which Facebook has. We know that. That's the reason why Elon Musk bought Twitter. He could have started his own social network, but getting those uh, connections in place is critically important. So maintaining that in the face of TikTok is a strong evidence that this network effect is still valuable. So that's part of the bump. I also would point out uh, that ARPU was up 4% year over year. And as we think about that handoff between stories to reels, to this competitor to TikTok and the monetization piece, they are actually making headwind. Uh, they're, making, they're making progress in terms of making more money from each user. And so there were two pieces that were uh, most encouraging around this. Unfortunately for investors is they are still going to hear a lot about TikTok from uh, their people around them, uh, potentially use TikTok themselves a lot. And I think that some of that concern is not going to go away on this print. We're going to fast forward three months and we're going to be on pins and needles to guess what that DAU number is. But at least for tonight, we can rest well knowing that that platform, that network is intact. So, Gene, when the company tells us that the ad tracking changes are going to cost or potentially could cost $10 billion in 2022, and that's coupled with who knows how many billions for Metaverse ramp up from there, even though this was a, a great relief rally and, and you, you uh, mirrored that sentiment, 
Do you think there's just too much gray area right now for the person who's not a believer to invest a new dollar in the market, in Facebook, in Meta right now? I think just you have to take into consideration what the valuation is, some of the thoughts that Karen has. And all that's true. Everything you said is absolutely true. And it's also true that it's uh, assuming they can hit that number for next year, which I think is is doable, that it's trading right now at 14 times. And so when you think about gray areas, I think about it in the context of valuation and relative to the opportunity. And so, uh, yes, those two factors, IDFA and navigating that, they have to build their own ad tracking platform. Uh, that is going to be a piece to it, uh, TikTok. But there's also this sense of owning a company that can uh, essentially make a shot at the metaverse. I am a believer in the metaverse. I've been uh, pretty vocal that it's a world that I don't want uh, really much of any uh, part in it because uh, I think it's just going to consume more and more of our time. As an investor, I think that this is an, uh, a segment that is going to continue to gain attention in the years to come. And so, Steve, uh, putting it together, I think that uh, it falls more into a green area versus a gray area from my perspective, because to get a shot at the metaverse and a critical company trading at 14 times earnings, uh, that, that combination usually doesn't line up very often. So, Gene, thanks for being on. It's Karen. I agree with just about everything you said. Putting all of those factors together, what do you think it's worth? I agree with you, 13, 14 is not the right multiple. What is the right multiple? So uh, we're going to let me uh, jump forward uh, six months from now. Once recession is priced in, I think that that's something that's going to impact all big tech. But to answer your question, I think that this should trade generally at what earnings growth uh, should be at. And that should be somewhere in the 18 to 22 percent range. So uh, I think uh, I, I would put a fair multiple on this at around a 20x uh, next year's earnings. Really quick, Gene, you don't think uh, recession is priced into big cap tech? I mean, even Facebook, for instance, down 40 plus percent going into this print. That wasn't pricing in recession at all? No. I think what's going to happen is we're going to get this relief. I think Apple numbers are going to be strong. I think that investors are going to um, uh, quickly shift their attention to what happens in the June quarter and the September quarters. Um, I, I vividly remember as an analyst in uh, one of in the pullbacks of the financial recession, uh, the feeling that everything is going great with these companies, but there's something out there that could really slow things down. In fact, that does uh, happen. And so I think that we're still haven't hit the bottom here. It's going to be uh, bumpy across the board for all big tech. I think once the numbers start to get ugly from a recession standpoint, let's say in Q3, Q4, once companies start talking about it, from my perspective, that's when the bottom is. And I want to end on a good note here, Melissa. <laughs> what that sets up is 2023, I think, is going to be a solid year. I think you need to be <laughs> positioned in these companies exiting this year in anticipation, which should be, uh, may I uh, dare say, a great year for tech in 2023. A silver lining to a recession. Uh, Gene, I'll leave it to you for that. Gene Munster of Loop Ventures. Um, Meta shares are up almost 19% right now. Let's get to Qualcomm. That's also jumping after its earnings report. John Ford's been digging into the numbers. John. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, there's a couple things in this beat and raise quarter to, to pay attention to. One is Qualcomm's story itself. You know, Cristiano Amon has been the CEO there officially for about a year now, and he's really trying to tell the story of Qualcomm moving beyond handsets. But on handsets themselves, Qualcomm did particularly well, and he said that to large part was because of Samsung's Galaxy S22. They've got 75% share, you know, their chips in that phone versus 
40% of the S21 a year ago. And so, you know, Amon telling me, and I spoke to him before the call started, that this speaks to Qualcomm's ability to make a better chip even than phone makers who make chips. Because in the past, Samsung would use their own chips uh, you know, in the S21. And he's nodding there, of course, to Apple, which is planning to make more of its own chips in its phones. He's arguing they're going to be able to beat them out uh, on the modem side. Now, um, the IoT business for them also did particularly well. It was up 61% to $1.7 billion in the quarter. I asked what's underneath that. Big part of that, they were talking about it on the call, industrial tablets. So think about people uh, working in warehouses and other settings, perhaps coming back to work. AR, VR is part of that as well. That's a big growing business that's not handset. Now, in China, he said that they are growing share. uh, But at the same time, the China market overall is having some issues. At the low end, he said that they were seeing some weakness. Of course, Qualcomm's focused on the higher end, but there are other companies out there that you might want to read through to in that. Uh, Their guide, uh, Qualcomm's guide, factors in a COVID recovery at the end of this June quarter. The guide, of course, was a beat as well. If that doesn't happen, well, you know, you have to factor that in too, Melissa. All right, John, thank you. John Fort. Um, Tim, you watched semis very carefully for a myriad of reasons. This looked like a good quarter for Qualcomm. It, it was an excellent quarter. John's highlighted that some of the strategic elements of the company, their diversification away from Apple, and some of the issues with Apple and the lawsuits, you know, are well in the rear of your mirror. And, and ultimately, what they're not highlighting enough, or what I think investors should take some heart in, is the 5G connectivity, the low processing elements of their business that actually give them a competitive advantage. But most importantly, and I think this has been emphasized by John, and certainly I'll, 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 I'll emphasize that 11 to 12 times makes this very, very cheap. And if you look at other semis, which are not cheap, um, this is a company that I do think is, is something that you can get pretty excited about at these levels. We'll talk about semis in a second when we talk about the market. I'm not sure we've seen the, the bottom yet, but um, this is a very strong quarter. Yeah. Steve, um, what does this tell you about other semiconductors? Yeah, so when I, look at the, when I look at Qualcomm on the chart, it looks similar to other charts, but Qualcomm underperformed Uh, so intensely that back in October of 2021, the stock jumped from about 135, ultimately to 184 or so, right around there. They've all round tripped. The stock is back down. NVIDIA is back down. AMD is back down. Their main thing is handsets. They're not the, uh, the internet of things thing. They're not the car. They're not everything that NVIDIA is and AMD is. So they're trying to migrate towards something that's a very low percentage of their overall segments that make money, but they're going to run face first into the animals in that segment, which is NVIDIA. And I think all semiconductors are going to run into that glut. And the charts tell me that. Everyone's ordering any semiconductor they can actually get their hands on, which means that six months down the road, we're gonna have too many chips. Julie, you agree in terms of the pendulum with the supply chain issues? People are over ordering and so we will have a glut Yeah, I absolutely do agree. You know, I think we had thought that having the level of consolidation in the chip sector that we do have would eliminate some of that overhang. But now with supply chain issues, you absolutely are seeing cases of double ordering and things not coming at the same time. So I think we will see more of these pendulum swings in the semiconductor space. It it just it it just makes sense. And, you know, a lot of the chips that are being produced for IoT, et cetera, they're really simple, easy commodity style chips. So not only is that not nearly as big a market as the handset market, but it's not nearly as profitable either. So I, I think to hope that IoT is going to be the savior or some of these smaller nascent markets, I, I don't think so. 
Right. Uh, we've got an earnings alert here on Amgen. Shares are dropping after the company disclosed a dispute with the IRS, which is looking for back taxes. Meg Terrell's got the details. Meg. Yeah, Mel, quite a lot in back taxes. The quarter itself for Amgen, pretty much fine. Beat on the top and the bottom lines, reiterated guidance. But it is that tax dispute with the IRS and not its first dispute that Amgen's disclosing that's driving the stock down more than 5%. Essentially, Amgen saying the IRS wants $5.1 billion in back taxes from 2013 to 2015 in a dispute over the way it allocated profits between the U.S. and Puerto Rico for that period. It could also add interest on top of that, as well as looking for a $2 billion penalty. So we're talking $7 billion just for that. That's on top of $3.6 billion they're already in dispute over from back to 2010 for the same issue. They are contesting that. They say they plan to contest this vigorously. But Mel, they also say they're being audited for 2016 to 2018. So this potentially isn't over. It could grow. But Amgen says this will take years potentially to play out. Mel? What a headache. Uh, Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. I mean, an IRS audit's never fun. <laughs> uh, is this the kind of thing that, I mean, I guess investors are not looking through this at all at this point, at least? Well, I, look, this is, Amgen's been a home run in biotech land relative to the peer group. And if you look at actually the numbers they just announced, they beat on the top line, they beat on the bottom line. Uh, and, and, you know, I think the product guide is still something that's uh, very impressive. Look, this is substantial in terms of a hit on profitability, and I think it's something you have to wait. These things tend to um, work themselves out somehow, but um, the stock down 5% right now, uh, without knowing the, the degree of that inquiry, uh, I would just say it's time to, to, to take a pause. Coming up, there are a lot more earnings we've got to get to tonight. We've got the results from Ford, Teladoc, and PayPal coming up, plus a major move higher in China tech today. But is there a big threat of looming of the reopening of that economy? We will get some answers next. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. We've got an earnings alert on Ford. Shares are well off their highs at the after-hour session, reporting a slight beat on the top and the bottom lines. Ford saying first quarter profits were dragged down by its stake in Rivian, but they are maintaining their full-year guidance, citing continued strong pricing and improved semiconductor availability. Ford CEO Jim Farley will be on Mad Money next hour. So that is a must-see uh, interview. 
Tim, what would you ask him? I, well, I, I would not waste time on the Rivian. I don't think I don't think the Rivian markup or markdown, which is unrealized in either direction, was terribly efficient. I would ask them about free cash flow. Uh, you know, five to six and a half, five and a half to six and a half was reaffirmed. Obviously, we, we want to hear about uh, the fast forwarding of the EV business, the interest in the, in the F-150 Lightning and, and, and the demand behind it, which we continue to think is still there. Uh, but the cost of the business and, and really what they can do in terms of production this year. Yeah, agree. I mean, Rivian's just a non-event. Um, it's, it sounds like GM Redux, right? Yeah. Good earnings. You have a low PE multiple, but really it's about the evolution to EV. So we'll see what they have to say. And we'll, you know, that F-150, that's going to be... Massive. That's going to be, right, a gigantic sort but of But reaffirming. Battle. Both of them yes. have reaffirmed during a difficult quarter. Right. All right. Let's get to the markets here. Uh, riding a roller coaster today, the Nasdaq rising over 1.7 percent at highs, falling as much as half a percent at its lows before closing basically flat. But take a look at some individual stock moves. Tesla gave up nearly 5 percent gain. NVIDIA swung more than 4 percent from high to low. So what are the moves tell you. Julie, what did you make of it? I mean, the, the session felt kind of weak, and I guess we saw it sort of decline into the close. So what did you make of it? You know, I think we keep coming up against these hopeful rallies of people trying to buy the dip. And there's just not the same level of conviction that we had last year when we didn't have the same levels of inflation. We didn't have a war. You know, we didn't have concerns about a U.S. consumer weakening. So I think it's hard to get really super enthusiastic and bold up on some of these stocks. I understand that the tech sector is down 20, 30, 40, big names down big numbers. But at the end of the day, who's to say that that high was really the right number? I think they're just moved back to where it's a little bit more of a reasonable valuation. So I'm not super enthusiastic and I I understand investors' hesitancy to get really big into the market right now. Are these bounces you sell, Grasso? Yeah, I I, I agree completely with Julie. I I think that you're getting the, the... the feel from traders that every time the market rallies, it's an opportunity to sell stocks and, and they've lost that whole thing of, oh, I'm getting my money back. There's no more psychology of getting my money back to where I was X amount of weeks ago, X amount of months ago. It's I just want a little bit more than that big red day where I felt gutted. But ultimately, I think everyone thinks the market's going lower which probably means we're an eye shot of a bottom. But as I said last night, I think that S&P low is probably going to have a 38 handle on it, not a 4,000 handle on it. Yeah, there also isn't that sort of FOMO of the retail investor that had been, you know, sort of the fuel for bounces in the past, Tim. We saw that with the Robinhood layoffs. That really underscored how the retail investor has has pulled back from these markets. Yeah, God forbid you bought one of those headlines on AMC or GameStop in the last three months, too, let alone one nine months ago. And and I, you know, I, I would echo the same sentiment. It, it's, you know, it may seem like there's a, a lot of doom and gloom that comes off this desk. I, I tell you what, I, I do think when you look at where the consumer is and when you look at sentiment right now, Steve, just referred to this. I mean, sentiment is terrible. Sentiment is, is certainly to a case where it's easy to look at the charts. Triple Qs and SMH. So I talked about semis being the most important chart. They closed lower than yesterday's closes. So be, to be clear, um, the charts did not enjoy today. And they were small closes below, but they are closes below. Give me Apple. Um, give me a reset of expectations there uh, and give me the S&P down probably three or 400 points. And then it's probably time. Then take a look at Netflix, Karen. Aren't you glad you got out of that one? Yes, I am. Down 5% today. Yes. I mean, on the heels of Alphabet, right? Right. But uh, I don't know. I just feel like I'll just step back and watch for a little bit longer. Yeah, but it was interesting when Gene said that he didn't think big cap tech, which has already seen huge 
percent declines, we have not gotten to the point where they have priced in recession. And so if that enters the psychology, there is more wood to chop to the downside. They haven't priced in recession. Um, we don't totally know. We know mechanically when evaluation at a higher discount rate. So, you know, higher interest rates will make stocks worth less. Um, we still don't really know where the economy is and how these companies will function in that environment. And stocks will discount in advance of that. And, and we're not going to, you know, the Fed's going to hike 50 bips next week, probably. They probably hike 50 bips after June. I'm not sure they can do a whole lot after that. But we'll have a much better idea in the fourth quarter. And that's why I think the market needs to sort through some of this. And I don't think it happens overnight. All right. Let's turn now to China, where the impact of lockdowns are now impacting food maker Tyson. The meat processor today saying it diverted shipments to other markets. Let's get more from DeWardrick McNeil, senior policy analyst at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. DeWardrick, great to have you with us. Great uh, you to know, be back, Melissa. To, to hear about the lockdowns in Shanghai, what they're doing in Beijing, it's, it's so reminiscent of the early days of the pandemic. Um, what are you telling clients or how are clients planning for continued supply chain disruptions? Do they think that things are going to be just as bad this time around? Or have we learned anything from living through the supply disruptions during the pandemic? Well, I hope that we have learned on this side what it means to have a situation where China goes into lockdown. I'll tell you, Melissa, there seems to be no end in sight. Xi Jinping has made it clear that pandemic control, that is the zero COVID policy, will remain in place despite all the pressure internally and externally to try and have a more reasonable pandemic control policy. Uh, I don't see that changing anytime soon. In fact, we're hearing about additional cities outside of Beijing and, and places like Inner Mongolia, home to some of China's uh, rare earth mineral production uh, starting to shut down. So I think people have to prepare themselves for a longer time dealing with the shutdown in China. Yeah, so it sounds like the supply chain issues aren't going to be pretty, DeWardrick. Um, isn't it different, This I hate to say this, isn't it different this, this time around in that uh, the population is protesting? They are protesting these lockdowns at this point. You know, Tyson is diverting food shipments, so there are food issues. There's inflation issues. You know, the, the people of China don't want this to happen this time. And doesn't that undermine Xi Jinping? Well, I think you hit it on the head. We had protests in Wuhan, but they were much more controllable. This is Shanghai, the major metropolitan city in China with lots of expats, lots of middle-class Chinese, and they were just not prepared for this level of a draconian lockdown. Although it is putting pressure on Xi, Xi is tied to this policy politically because for so long, uh, Melissa, he has touted this policy and his system at being able to better manage an outbreak of a pandemic than, say, democracy. So he has to see this through. And that means a lot of pain for Chinese uh, citizens, for expats there, and for businesses that depend on China and its supply chain. I have read conspiracy theories, DeWardrick, um, as to why Xi Jinping would go to such draconian extremes in terms of zero COVID. I mean, we're reading about cases where there's one or two cases of COVID in a building and they construct fences around that building to prevent people from going in or out. Um, is it possible in your view, I mean, you being the China expert, that perhaps China is doing this to to show the rest of the world what a grip it's got in, in terms of the supply chain and, and the power it has? Yeah, I've, I've read a number of those stories as well, Melissa. China doesn't have to prove to the world that it has a grip on power. It does. But I'll tell you some real reasons why China is extremely afraid of the pandemic. 
Uh, one, the efficacy of China's vaccine, Sinovac and Sinopharm, are nowhere near as high as Moderna or Pfizer or J&J, for that matter. So for that reason, they're concerned. We also have to remember how old the population is. Demographically, there are a lot of people in China over 60 and at risk of death if this virus got loose. And then finally, the health system, although it's made many uh, steps and, and progresses over the years, it's still not as strong as it needs to be to handle a pandemic like this. And so it could get overwhelmed. So there are some legitimate reasons for them to do this. We may not agree with how strict it is, but it's not just to prove that they have power. That's pretty well established. All right. DeWardrick, great to see you. Thank you, DeWardrick McNeil. Thank you, Melissa. Uh, Julie, how do you see the, the impacts playing out? You know, I think we continue to see it rippling through the supply chain. And, you know, the minute that there is some kind of a problem, some kind of a factory shutdown, at every step along the way, there's so much complexity in the supply chain that you you get these waxes and wanes of supply. So you get places where there's too many containers that are empty in the port of Long Beach and they don't even have they're not even able to get them back. Right. So it, it just kind of ripples through the system. And so right now we're seeing transportation be kind of soft, but I think there's absolutely a case where you have build back inventory and you know it becomes really full again. Warehouses are at you know, full capacity right now. We've rebuilt our inventories. My concern now is that there's going to be a lot of seasonal merchandise that's going to be coming to us way too late. And then we're going to have a major inventory overhang that's very hard to wind down profitably. So I think there's a lot of risk to margins and retailers, especially those selling seasonal merchandise. Is there a silver lining, Tim, to this and the impact on the Chinese economy and that their monetary policy is going it's in expanding. reverse yeah. of ours? Yeah, it, it's accommodating. Um, they have to worry about their currency, though. If you look at the yuan, it's, it's had a major move. Uh, and, and there are some folks that feel that there's more pressure uh, on their economy. And if you look at some of the biggest stocks, and obviously whether it's the KWeb, uh, the Internet ETF, which had some, some upgrades and had a nice day today, uh, but Tencent and Alibaba, the, the, the two of the biggest, I think, most important tech companies in the world, continue to, to kind of you know, plunge to new lows. And I think this is a, a major issue. Capital control and flow of capital in and out of the country is something I think China should be worried about. Coming up, volatility victory. The market continuing its wild ride. So how can you shield your money? We are laying out some portfolio protection next. And we're all over the after hour moves in PayPal and United Rentals. We're breaking down the company quarters when Fast Money returns. 
Yeah, Melissa, in this particular market when volatility is so high, there is one simple strategy that almost every options trader has at their disposal to provide some downside protection and some income, and that is a covered call. And if you, to understand a covered call, this is a strategy that requires you to have at least 100 shares of an optionable stock or ETF where you can sell a call option against that stock with the stock as your collateral against the obligations of that call, which will generate some income. And what it does is it obligates you to sell your stock at that specific strike price on or before the expiration date. So just to break this down and look at this from a graphics perspective, one of the best ways to understand this particular strategy is you're giving away future upside of the stock that you own in exchange for upfront income that you can receive today. And this is something that's going to reduce your cost basis and provide a little bit of downside protection by the premium that you're collecting. And in this particular environment with such elevated volatility, you're just gonna be able to collect more premium. Now, if you look across the board, as I said, with VIX above 30, you're gonna find premium just about everywhere you look. But right now within the technology and consumer stock sector is really where we see some of the most juiced up income. So one of the examples that I have here is if you look at Robinhood, a 30 day, 12 and a half dollar strike price on Robinhood, that's a strike price 30% above the current price of the stock, will generate about 3.5% of the stock's value in just 30 days. That annualizes out to about 44% yield on that cover call. So that's providing you a lot of protection here in just 30 days. And you see this across the board in many of these technology and consumer stocks that are a little bit higher beta. All right, Tony, thanks. Tony Zhang, for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, more details on the Elon Musk Twitter deal and the ad spending challenges that could be coming to the social sector. And there's more earnings coming your way. Shares of PayPal on the move after reporting. We'll bring you the numbers next when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Teladoc. They are down now by 39%. The company posting a miss on revenue, issuing disappointing guidance. The stock down 87% from its all-time high hit February of last year. Bespoke tweeted, uh, you know, half an hour ago or so, that its shares are are off 60% from pre-pandemic levels. So investors are effectively saying the business looks worse today than it did pre-pandemic when everybody used Teladoc to see their doctors. Karen, what do you make of this huge miss? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is Julie talking about things coming in a lot, but still being expensive. Clearly, this is one of them. The giant, the guidance, though, that giant EBITDA miss, you know, when you traded a sort of magical pixie dust multiple of, of I guess, revenue earnings, and then you're going to be light, bad things are going to happen. There's also that $6 billion um, Impairment. impairment, which is a non-cash charge, but it, you know what is all what what is that? What was that from? What goodwill are they writing down? They thought that was so valuable. Only nope. forty-one bucks a share. You know, I mean, forty billion. I mean, it's yeah. staggering. It, yeah, it's crazy. So, so, and and the thing is, I'm looking at a Cowan report, not picking on Cowan, but this was their preview report to the show to to the stock, and they said looks attractive um, on risk reward and saying at three point two times EV to sales, um, it was trading half the pre-pandemic level. That's fair for an analyst to make that call for a company who's got a very different business. But, you know, we talk about a crash that's going on in, in, in the world of high multiple tech. Uh, this is the poster child of Pets.com, um, you know, 2.0 or the modern version. In other words, think of the sweet spot that they were in, both in terms of online, in terms of COVID. And, and you know, this is exactly what you get. All right. Let's get to a, another earnings alert here. PayPal shares on the move after reporting the company posting a revenue beat. Kate Rooney has got all the details. Kate. 
Hey, Melissa, yeah, significant slash as well to full year guidance for PayPal. The company also withdrawing its medium term outlook for the full year. PayPal dropping revenue growth expectations to between 11 and 13 percent for the full year. EPS also lower than what Wall Street was looking for. Dan Schulman, the CEO of PayPal, kicking off the call with a bit of a mea culpa. He says shareholders expect more from us than our track record over the past several quarters has delivered. He says he takes full accountability for that. And as for why they're pulling that medium term guidance, he says PayPal is looking to level set expectations in what he calls a dynamic environment. He went on to say the macro environment has deteriorated. He talks about Russia, Ukraine and China contributing to increased global uncertainty and incremental inflationary pressures. Also mentions e-commerce spending normalizing coming out of the pandemic. So a bit different here than what we heard from Amex and Visa. And as far as the game plan going forward, Shulman talked about user engagement versus growth. They've changed the way they're measuring that and a focus on checkout as well as doubling down on the digital wallet. Back to you. User engagement instead of growth as the metric. And he wants to switch that. That's like a that's that's a red flag, I think, for investors. But yeah. Well, yeah, interesting. They changed the way that they're doing net new active accounts. They had about a seven hundred and fifty million account target that they completely scrapped in the prior quarter. So this sort of they set the stage last quarter. This time they talked about sort of how that's going and, and really focused on more engagement. But that was a surprise to a lot of investors in the prior quarter. All right. Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney. Um, Karen, you own this one. I do own this one. You know, uh, the bar was low. It's sort of a game of limbo where you you can slide under the bar actually now, as long as you don't <laughs> you even touch very it. Very agile. You don't even you actually need agile. to touch it, and yet things have sold off so much that that's good enough. So, I mean, I think obviously we've seen fintech just get annihilated, but things are starting to come down to just uh, what I think is not a crazy multiple. I would love to see a new CFO in here. I think that's really important. I want to wait for that to, before I end. Yeah, Julie, how are you feeling about fintech? Yeah, I mean, fintech is probably one of the most crowded and overinvested spaces. Everyone has some fabulous whiz bang technology, but whether it actually works, gets implemented, I, to me, it's just it's a lot of hot air. I think with PayPal's case, you think about that business. Why is it so clunky still? They haven't really been investing in that business. I look at Shopify and what the Apple wallet is doing, and they're just eating their lunch. So I'm concerned that the product is not as good as it can be, because underlying this business, it's fundamentally a very strong, good business. I think back to the Pinterest um, attempted deal, Steve, and, and uh, you know a lot of folks here on the desk were questioning why they would do that. Why are they trying to buy growth? Pinterest, by the way, is up 10% in the after-hour session. But what do you make of PayPal here? Yeah. Yeah, the company told you they had no ideas for growth when they were trying to buy Pinterest. And you said it with Teladoc, two totally different businesses. But this one, the pre-pandemic level was 120 bucks. This stock is actually trading at the pandemic low. So I would stay away from this one. Traditional names, Visa, MasterCard, those are more value-oriented. The whole fintech space has been just obliterated. I would stay away from this one. Coming up, Digital Dilemma. Elon Musk find Twitter in the middle of an ad spending slowdown. And it's not just Twitter in the crosshairs. The details ahead. Fast Money's back in two. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Fears uh, rising about the health of the digital ad market. YouTube reporting a big miss on ads yesterday. Snap issuing a warning for the quarter around advertising and similar concerns now at Twitter with the potential sale of the platform to Elon Musk. Apple and Amazon set to report tomorrow. How concerned should digital platforms be about this marketing spend slowdown? Let's welcome Sahil Bloom, managing partner at SRB Ventures. Sahil, great to have you here on set with us. Um, are we only seeing a slowdown at the smaller players? And for others, it's there is no alternative, so marketers spend there? I think there's going to be a lot of challenges across the board, and I think you're going to see it more as we head into Q2 because what happens is this is all a trickle effect, right? You have this entire market that is going to start experiencing a lot of uncertainty that we're seeing out in the market. Inflation, you know, for the large privates that raised at these huge valuations over the course of the last year, they're facing a tougher fundraising environment. And those people were spending a lot on these ad platforms. You're not going to see that as much from them. They're going to be tightening their belts, trying to think about cash flows, trying to think about preserving some of that cash. And that's going to impact these large digital ad platforms. To the extent that there is that competition that will, won't be as, you know, well situated, could that be just, you know, the strong survive and the rest don't? I think so. I mean, you're going to see people flock to quality when it comes to this stuff. And so when you think about Twitter and an ad stack that has been challenged historically, especially on the direct response advertising side, it's going to be tough for them to do well in an environment where people are pulling back. But so isn't it, I mean, the, the, the tailwind in the secular ad, digital ad world is such a massive market and it's only growing. It's not going anywhere. Linear TV is dead. So isn't this really a story of a relative outperformance from company to company? And, and so, you know, Facebook is, is what we hear, you tell me, is getting its lunch cleaned by TikTok and, and even Reddit. And so, you know, talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, it's all time horizons. Long term, absolutely. Digital advertising is going to continue to rise. People are going to continue to spend money here as this grows. But in the short term, it's really going to be disrupted. And I see a lot of disruption coming in Q2. Any of my friends that are spending time within the digital ad world, they're already starting to see it. People are tightening ad budgets. They're not spending as much for their full year ad buys. They're starting to think a little bit more about, you know, what does it look like? What does the future look like for the next few months? So. I think it's going to be interesting to see what Q2 looks like yep. for everybody. Do you think short-term marketers pull from Twitter, just given the uncertainty about the platform and the uncertainty about how the platform will be viewed under Elon Musk? Well, they have six or so months before the merger is likely to, to close and for the all this to happen. power users are already leaving to some degree. Some of them are. I, I think a lot uncertainty is going to hurt them. And it's, un, it's unclear to everybody whether they're going to continue to operate as they did before or are they going to get a little bit tentative and it starts changing the environment of it. And then post the transaction, does Elon Musk fundamentally change how they think about advertising? Right. Sal, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having Sal me. Sal Bloom, SRB Ventures. Karen, how are you feeling um, about your Twitter short? My Twitter short is really, well, I'm feeling good going into tomorrow's earnings. Yeah. I think that won't help. And I, it's really about uh, the, the merger agreement, the risk reward. It's all about risk reward. I get, you know, added on Twitter. You hate Elon. I don't hate Elon. I think he's a genius. It's just a question of here's a merger agreement that is actually much better for Elon. He can walk away and just pay a billion. If that happens, there's a ton of downside. Yeah, yeah it, it just seems to me when we look at the, the world that Twitter's in, and, and there's nothing in terms of these, this monetization that's changed, and this is my frustration because we heard very different things 18 months ago, um, I, I would probably tend to agree with Karen. I, you know, what Sahil is talking about, the overall ad market, like the cyclicality of the digital ad market in the next three to six months, he's right, under a lot of pressure. 
that's not really the issue, though, I think these companies are facing. I think they're wrestling with who's really in the driver's seat. Because, look, um, we've had these periods before, and I think advertisers really have no place else to go. So let's see. All right. Up next, final trades. Do not miss the CNBC stock draft. It's back tomorrow, yes. 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our very own Tim Seymour is getting in on the action team. Seymour Alpha. Oh, yeah. Get it? Oh, yeah. Seymour Alpha. Yeah. Um, I'll be joining the big show, too. I think Guy's going to make an appearance. It's going to be Jim Cramer. I better do better than last year. I'll tell you what. what I'm hanging out. I don't, I don't even think I know, but I, I can just tell you. Bitcoin. You I had the number one pick with Bitcoin. I didn't want to take it. I took it. Um, Great crew tomorrow, though. I mean, yeah. Ryan Reynolds, the Admiral. I mean, they, you know, there's there's a stock. I don't know how they invited me to this thing yet again. So, no, really exciting day. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at uh, at the action in a couple of stocks post earnings tonight. We got Meta, we got Pins, PayPal, Qualcomm, United Rentals, Green across the board. Um, maybe no surprise given the setup going into these quarters. On the downside, though, we've got Amgen in a tax dispute with the IRS and Teladoc just getting creamed. After hours down 37%. Time for the final tra- trade. Julie had to go. We thank her for joining us. Steve, kick us off. So last night we heard from Ch- Chipotle and they said they had pricing power. I think I'd rather put my bet on McDonald's going into uh, economic uncertainty. McDonald's. Karen? Yeah, so the three day rule turns out applies to upside as well. I would wait to buy Meta. Tim. Walmart, brick and mortar, Mel. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Stock draft. 2 p.m. Stock draft on CNBC. Thank you for watching Fasty. Back here tomorrow at 5 for Fast. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.